Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jeremy. Around uh, 15 years ago, one of our closest friends came out as gay, and he disclosed his same-sex orientation to Joanne and I. He was working for a church of which I was one of the pastors. So I was even a little more delicate and complicated because he was revealing to us uh, potentially damaging information in so many ways. And we were absolutely honored that he would treat us. He would pick us to disclose that very, very confidential information. And to this point, as far as I remember, nobody in the church know about his sexual orientation, and his secret is safe with us. But I remember Joanne and I sitting in our little basement in Toronto, crying with him, praying with him, and walking the journey with him in the last 15 or so years, he is still very close friend, and we don't get time to connect with a lot of our friends from Toronto, but he is one of our regular, and when Joanne is on the phone with him, that I know I shouldn't disturb her for another hour, <laughs> that is the minimum conversation we have. She, she is more close to him than I am uh, in, in so many ways. Um, he chose a life of chaste singleness because he would follow what I call an ethics of obedience, where you embrace God's design for him, his sexuality of all the universe, uh, without totally not understanding it. That's a, a glimpse of what we call an ethics of obedience. Since we have met a few others who have somehow chosen us to be the people to be mediating their sexual orientation with others, and some of them, a few others, uh, Christians and non-Christians, friends and family members, <laughs> um, chose us to be the first people to know of that. And then we had to be the bridge builders mediating uh, their relationship with friends, family, and even God. But I always say to them, you know, I will always love you regardless of who you think you are. But there's a problem between the love, there is a difference between the love of God and the love of the world. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. But God doesn't love everything. That's a big difference. You cannot love others the way God loved them 
unless you hate what God hates in them. That's where the, the marker, right? It's always a challenging marker. Now, that mediating in that relationship and how you connect people with God, regardless of their own perception of their identity, has always been a challenge and to embrace what God's love is. So we are going back to the basic again, to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I'm glad Tom set us up with that song, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. We are designed to do that closer walk with God in the Garden of Eden. That is the ultimate purpose of our design, that closer walk with God, the Lord. So would you stand with me uh, to read a couple verses today, all from the Garden of Eden, where it all began. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, and then skip to chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord, had, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When we have a regular conversation, everyday conversations, sometimes it could be a dialogue, sometimes it could be a debate, and when we have this conversation, the way we frame a sentence sometimes invoke certain logical fallacies. I'll just, I'll just give you an example. Like last week, I talked about the difference between sex and gender. You remember? And a lot of people wrote to me, thank you for clarifying that because we almost always use these terms interchangeably. We think they are synonymous, we think they are the same, but they are not. So this is a logical fallacy called false equivalency in, in a conversation. Anyway, I'm not here to talk, teach you logic. But sometimes we take two different categories and assume that they are the same, and they, we create a false equivalency in logical arguments and come to wrong conclusion. Now, sometimes, at least sex and gender are two words. Sometimes these words look the same. Now, there is a phrase that you often hear about, particularly a specific month of the year, is love is love. I'm sure you know, you know that. Some of us uh, have uh, embraced that. Sometimes we post that in our in Facebook to, 
to show that how inclusive we are, how welcoming we are, how loving we are, because love is love. That makes sense, right? It's like saying three is three. Yeah, yeah. It's a platitude uh, in a way. But when you really look at it, it is not just an innocent platitude. It's, a, it's, a, it's blatantly wrong. I will, I will prove that. I love Joanne. I love my wife, Joanne. But I love, if I love any other women in this church, the way I love Joanne, we have a scandal. We have a scandal. But I do love every woman in this church. <laughs> I do love every man in the church. I do love every children in the church. So you know that love is not this love. You know that. Even when you say love is love, you know that is not correct. Because the Greek philosopher, not Greek philosopher, the Greek language itself has classified four different loves, and you probably learned this from Sunday school. There is philia, which is the love between friends, and then there is storge or storge, whichever you pronounce, is the familial love, the natural love. And then we have eros, which is romantic, sensual love. And then there is agape, which is the love of God. So when we say love is love, a low-resolution language like English cannot capture the depth of what that means like a profound language, Near Eastern language like Greek. So we create this false equivalency and a smoke screen to confuse us about what we are saying instead of saying what we wanted to say directly. Now the reason I'm saying this is I want to notice the way the serpent created a false equivalency in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you really read what God commanded to them, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. If I just only read verse 16, this is what the Lord said. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Close the Bible. That's exactly what God said. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. God did not say that I'm going to stop you from eating a particular tree. God was not a tyrannical dictator to say that you cannot do that. No. God said, that's exactly what he said. From any tree of the garden, any tree, any tree, including the one in the middle, you may eat freely. That's, that's exactly what God said. But, 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 here's a choice. It's your choice. It's your choice, but if you don't want to, want to die, then you cannot eat the tree, of the forbidden fruit. Now, what did the devil do? So this is exactly the crafty serpent asking. <laughs> now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, this is what he says, Indeed, has God said, 
then inverted comma. He's quoting. This is a direct quote from God. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The answer is no. God didn't really say that. And he is right. The serpent is right. That is the way he positions the question. That is the way he frames the argument, especially if you read the Hebrew. It is very interesting. The word call, which is used, is, is not just any tree. It says every tree, or it, is the, it, it, it represents the, the wholeness, the, the everything. It encompasses everything. That's the word. And that's the exact word the serpent is speaking. Did God say that you should not? It's just like a whichever tree. God said, you can eat from whichever tree. And God is asking, didn't, did God say that you cannot eat from whichever tree? No, God didn't say that. So this is a very interesting way of creating false equivalency. And as a result, what happens in the Garden of Eden, I need to do a, a year-long series to talk about Genesis 1 to 3. What happens in the Garden of Eden is a treasure trove of theological information. If you just want to read it as two naked people walking around and eating some forbidden fruit, that's good for you. It's a five-minute sermon. But if you go deep into what is happening before the history as we know, there are so many profound things that is packed in Genesis chapter 1, one to 3. So one thing, first thing you see is there is a potential of evil. Right? Like there is a potential of them eating the tree. That is exactly what set them up for. Genesis chapter 2, 16, God said, you can eat whichever, call, whatever you want to do. You have the freedom to do it. So God set them with a potential. Because with that, without that potential, there is no free will. That's the problem. Right? Without free will, there is no love. God is love. <laughs> so God had to give them free will with the potential to do good or bad. Without, Because love is something where you have to choose to do it. You have to choose someone to love. Otherwise, it's not love. That is the predicament, right? So here in the Garden of Eden, you see the potential. I would say an orientation towards sin. It can go either way, left or right, good or bad. But God had to do it because that's the gift of free will. Now then, you know as the story goes, sin happens. What we call the sin of disobedience. Or the woman in the story actualizes that potential. Right? If the potential is not actualized, then there is no sin. So the woman actualized the potential. So this actualization created what we call the sin of disobedience. So the woman ate the fruit of the tree and she gave it to her husband. Then the sin entered by actualizing this potential. We thought the story was over. But in my opinion, the real sin happens afterwards. We always... Blame it on the women. <laughs> the women always get the bad rap. Oh, you know. But if you really read the story clearly, let me ask you this. Imagine God came back to the garden just for a closer walk with us. That's what he used to do. And when he came, on, came for the walk and he said, 
Adam, where are you? He didn't say, Eve, where are you? Because, you know, normally that's why the, the person who is in trouble is the, is the one who gets the call. That's not what's happening. God said, Adam, where are you? And then if Adam came and said, God, I am so sorry. I messed this up really, really bad. See, you gave me the woman because you thought that it is not good for me to be alone. But I left that woman alone and be by myself. That was the first sin we don't talk about. Because God thought that it is not good for man to be alone. But when the serpent came, the woman was alone, which really means that the man left her alone. That's what I think. Okay? <laughs> I'm not a feminist. <laughs> but, but you read the story correctly. Right? So, if the Adam came and said, you know what? It's a mistake. I own up to this. I shouldn't have left her by herself, uh, left her by herself anyway. So, I am so very sorry. I am deeply, deeply sorry. Can you help us? What would have happened? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not God and I'm going to speculate. But I'm speculating things would have been much different from where we are now. Now, but what actually happens is the sin of Adam is much worse than the sin of Eve. The sin of Adam is justifying the sin or rationalizing the disobedience. See, disobedience is a mistake. It, we, we all make mistakes. It's an error that happened. You know, we are all human beings. That, that, that's that. But what Adam did was rationalizing that mistake. First thing he said that this woman you gave, two people are already blamed. You, you God who gave me this woman who put, you put her here with me and she gave me this. I don't know, don't ask me. <laughs> No, that, that, that's the story. That is the story. I know it sounds funny, but really serious. <laughs> so the sin of Adam is the real sin, if you ask me. The original sin is not just disobedience, but the sin of rationalization creates the sin of rebellion, saying that what you establish a system which is kind of cool, but I think that I'm okay by going according to my system, my own way of life. Now, that is when it really becomes sin. It's a, from, from sin of disobedience, we progress to the sin of rebellion, open rebellion against the commandment of God. See, there is always a hierarchy. Many people say that there are no hierarchy among sins. So when you do a sin, it's always a sin, which is not true. Because Jesus himself said, every sin you do will be forgiven. Every blasphemy will be forgiven. But the sin you commit against the Holy Spirit or the blasphemy you commit against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That's in the Bible. I can do it another, on another sermon. That's not the point. All, all what I'm trying to say is that sin, there is a gradation. There is a hierarchy in looking at sin. So the sin of rebellion is much worse than the sin of disobedience. 
Now that is what happening in the Garden of Eden. Both that's in fun, there was an actualization of the potential God gave us, and then the rationalization of that actualization, which created the sin of rebellion. Now why am I saying all this? You know, people ask me, <laughs> Pastor Matthew, do you think homosexuality is sin? It's a sin. I know it's a trap question. <laughs> These are nuanced issues. People go through it, struggle through it. Not only the people struggle through it, their friends and family, there are many people, even in this congregation I know, you know, sometimes we think it is just a person who is going through that issue, but the families and friends suffers just as much, at least to some degree. So it's, it's very easy to go and do some Bible thumping and giving an answer. But I always categorize into three different categories, very much like what we see in the Garden of Eden. When people say, is homosexuality a sin? There is nothing called homosexuality. First of all, you need, you need, to, you need, to, you need to define what you're saying. So there are three things involved when, in that question. One, there is a same-sex orientation same-sex orientation, and then there is a same-sex act or same-sex intercourse, per se. And then there is a same-sex lifestyle, which involves same-sex marriage and all that kind of stuff. So these are three different things. For example, not all the people with same-sex orientation do not do commit a same-sex act that not all the same people who engage in same-sex intercourse do not necessarily support or want to have same-sex marriage. I know all these kind of people. I've done my homework. I've walked this journey with many, many people. Not all of this comes straight from the Bible, from our life and from our experience and all that. So we need to distinguish between these three things. So when people ask same-sex orientation, is that, is that a sin, same-sex orientation? And if you listen to my sermon last week, I explained the theology of fall and how that things can be affecting us in different ways. But that question itself is debatable when you say, is the, you know, or the other way as people asking is, can people be born gay? Can people be born with same-sex orientation? It is a debatable thing because I don't really know the answer. I'm not a medical doctor. A lot of medical science in the Western world thinks there is, that is how it is, but there are scientists in other parts of the world, like in Iran and India and all that places. They might differ because the so-called science in this, in this area is very narrative-driven. It goes with the popular culture, right? So it's, it's debatable. It doesn't matter to me. The question is whether same-sex orientation is biologically predicated or culturally induced? That's the question. And in the Western world, this is even more difficult because cultural pressure is too much. And you won't believe how many people ask me, Pastor, I worry if my son is gay because he likes pink color. And I'm like, who created this? Pink color is only for women. Who came up with this? I, I am, pink was my favorite color. You can ask my wife. 
And I always had a pink shirt. And the first time I went to Paris, the fashion capital of the world, almost 20 years ago, the first time I went to Paris, I came up with four or five pink shirts for all my buddies. And men, we, we take pride in wearing the same shirt, you know, it's unlike women. So, you know, so we all were wearing pink shirt. We loved pink shirt. You know, that's the, I mean, the assigning color to the gender was the trick created by the Western consumer culture. It's dangerous. It is dangerous. This is, this is part of the problem. And that's why people are wondering, can, can it be, you know, it's the same, it's against me. Like you ask my wife, what is her favorite color? Look at her. <laughs> it ain't pink. It's blue. She likes blue. Now that's a complete gender reversal right here. But it doesn't mean anything from where I am coming from. See, some of the things are really, really created by the Western world. And I accuse our culture for this. And there is another thing. You know, recently some people asked me, you know, my son, my son wants to watch Barbie. Is he gay? And I'm like... Now, I'm not making up these things. This is seriously true. One of my brothers-in-law in India, my, married to my cousin's sister, had a Barbie collection. And if you go to their house, he loved Barbie collection. This is a grown man with a, a high executive in a, in a big company. He had a Barbie collection in the showcase while he walked in. And my sister hated it. And, and, you know, and they had a son. They had only one son. And he was also into Barbie. And these are college-going son. And I remember, you know, my brother-in-law and my nephew will be playing with their Barbie collection all along. And they were dropping on the floor. And my sister will come stumble on it. Get the heck out of this. You know, that's what. <laughs> this, is, this is a pocket. We have created all of these issues and necessarily feeding confusion, gender confusion into people's mind. This is a spirit. This is an evil spirit that was lurking in the Garden of Eden. This is the predator who was lurking in the Garden of Eden that is influencing our culture. But I will tell you, whether it is by nature or nurture, as a theologian, I have no problem believing that people can be born with same-sex orientation. There is nothing, as I understand in my theology, that will stop me from accepting the fact that people can be born with same-sex orientation. That, is my, that was my sermon last week, what happened in the Garden of Eden. So if you're confused, go and listen to my sermon last week. So for me, it doesn't matter. I don't want to wait for doctor's verdict or the verdict of the culture. I think the Bible is very clear. I have no problem. Now the next thing is a little tricky which is the same-sex act. When you are born with that orientation, now can we actualize that? Other way, the question will be put this way. If I am born with a homosexual orientation or same-sex orientation, what stops me from doing that? Isn't it unfair for God to ask me to stop from doing that? It sounds like a legitimate question. Here is my answer. I'm being completely candid with you. I am born 
with the proclivity to have sex with multiple women. I have no monogamous orientation when I was born. Every single man in this room are born with that orientation. Given an opportunity, the orientation is not monogamous. We all want to have sex with multiple women. I don't know about women. I'm not going to say anything about that. But I had a covenantal relationship with my wife to enter into sacred, holy matrimony. Listen to the ethics of obedience, constraining my natural inclina inclination, my animalistic, my primate orientation to be confined within the covenant of God, to enter into a holy, sacred matrimony with my wife. Now that is not restricting. That is actually liberating. That is actually liberating. So, just because we are born with a certain kind of proclivity or tendencies or predisposition, that doesn't really mean that God gives us the permission to act on all of that. If we are all act, going to act the same, the way that we are born with, with that animalistic or our, or our, our natural tendencies per, per se, then this world will end in 30 seconds. Because we are all going to go wild. Right? So what I'm saying is that the actualization of a potential, of an orientation, is a completely different thing. And I try not to invoke the Bible a lot because the Bible is already in the hand of many, many scholars. You know, you can make the Bible say what it, what it want to be, what you want it to say, by the way you interpret it. That is what Adam taught us. You can rationalize anything. I did my master's in theological studies at University of Toronto. It is like UCLA and USC. I know all the tricks in the hat. I've read all books out there. You can make anything using critical methodologies. You can make it say what it wants to be said. But I'm going to give you some, I'm not even going to read it. I'm going to put some verses out in the screen for you to know. These are some of the Bible verses which explicitly prevent us from actualizing that potential. Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 20, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 10, Romans 1, 24, 27. So just five of them. You can go home and read, but there will also be books which says that, well, the Greek is not exactly that. Well, that's not exactly what it meant. It is culturally very different from what we say. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going to base my argument on the Bible in this case because, like, I don't want to make my, meet my maker and be accused of interpreting his scripture the way I want it to sound because I want to appease a certain segment of the world, right? So, but I'm just putting it out there. For me, for me, as a human being, I don't even want to go to the Bible. See, sometimes it's a problem when we go to the Bible. I don't know why should we go to the Bible. You go to countries like China 
or Russia, <laughs> they are not godly countries at all. They are actually based their principles on communism, which is anti-God in so many ways. But all of these countries, it's taboo. There is nothing in the Quran that says anything against homosexuality. But in countries like Iran and most of the Islamic republics, it's punishable by death. I don't know why. Because people, naturally, there are sort of things there is there are we call a priori truth or self-evident truth. So this is not just a little cocoon in America and the Western scientists cook up. There is a far wide world out there. Chester, Chesterton said this, it's called Chesterton's fence, that if you don't know, you should never destroy a fence if you do not understand why it was created in the first place. Why this is a taboo in all these cultures? Why it is a taboo in different parts of the world? So if you don't know what that is, then, then if you don't totally understand what that is, then you shouldn't try to change it. That is Chesterton's defense. That is the theory. So for me, it is just as simple as that. I'll be very, very clear or keen about that when I enter into this kind of dialogue. And also... From a biblical perspective, I see in a, in, a, in a sexual act, forgive me for being very explicit, I see there are three things in a sexual act as God ordained it. One I call precision, and another thing I call purpose, and another thing I call pleasure. These three things come together in a sexual act as God designed. What do I mean by that? See, starting with purpose, when you go to my first sermon, I said, sex is a sacred act ordained by God to reproduce his image and likeness in this world. God has a purpose for sex. It is not just for your pleasure. It is his only way to reproduce his image and likeness in the world. So if there is no possibility, at least a potential to reproduce that image and likeness, the purpose in that sexual intercourse is lost. Then there is what we call a precision. Now this again, this is common sense. Unfortunately, the higher up you go in the academia, common sense tend to disappear. But, but in common sense, like my mom, I still remember back in the days explaining, trying to explain homosexuality to my mom in India. She didn't understand. I took half an hour. She didn't understand what did that even it didn't make, it didn't even compute in her world because it didn't fit into her common sense. Because it is commonly understood by ordinary people that human genitalia, the way it is designed, the male sexual organ and the female sexual organ are somehow very smartly engineered so that to fit into each other, to dovetail into each other, there is a sense of precision in the way things are designed in the nature, whether you believe in God or not, whether you think Bible is stupid or homophobic or not, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to go to the Bible. All it takes is common sense about precision and about purpose. But then pleasure, yes. Whichever way you want to have pleasure, that, that's fine for you. Pleasure is, if pleasure is all about firing dopamine into your into your brain, there are different ways of accomplishing pleasure. The point I'm trying to make is, when it comes to an act, actualizing the potential or actualizing the orientation, it becomes a completely different thing. And I don't want to take too much of our time. We have a congregational meeting today. 
the last one is same-sex lifestyle or same-sex marriage and all of the other things. And first of all, I want to repeat this. I'm very proud of this country, America, because we have given a clear distinction between church and state. And as church, we agree to disagree with the, with the state about the definition of marriage. The state is governed by taxpayers, whoever decides whatever is the law, and we are not here to interfere in that law unless it is really coming back to kill us or something like that, that's a different thing. So there is a respectful disagreement with the state about the definition of marriage or whatever you want to call it. But when it comes to church, we believe that God has ordained, as very clearly seen in the last two sermons, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God said God, he created people in male and female, and then they will become one flesh. That is the design, God-ordained design of marriage. Then you would say, but you said Genesis chapter 3, everything changed, the fall happened, the orientation changed. Absolutely true. But the orientation change doesn't mean that the system God designed changed. I'll give you proof. Jesus came way after Genesis 3. Way after Genesis 3. And he said this, Matthew chapter 19, 4 and 5. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. The fall changed human predisposition, but it did not change the law and order established by God. This is what we believe. We believe the marriage is a union. We don't even call, I mean, at least I don't even call it marriage. I always say I'm not married to Joanne. I, have, I am in holy matrimony with Joanne. Because the word marriage has been completely misrepresented in this culture anyway. Marriage doesn't mean anything in this culture. The divorce rate in, among Christians is almost the same as non-Christians. We have devalued marriage anyway. So I don't, I don't have a big problem with any kind of marriage anyway. Here it is very easy to fall in love in Los Angeles and drive to Las Vegas, get married, and come back and divorce one day. Stating irreconcilable difference. So who's the point? I don't care about marriage. I don't want to enter into whoever wants to get married, fine. Go ahead and get married. That's my policy. But holy matrimony, which is established by God as a sacred union, enter into a covenantal relationship. It is very clear by God in, the, in Genesis and also Jesus in the gospel. There is a union between man and a woman. And so I just want to conclude by reading LAC, Lake Avenue Church, has a statement of marriage policy. I'm reading it because I don't want to bait and switch, you know. Very often some churches say, we love everybody, yeah, we love everybody, but then when you, when you come on board, because I love you, irrespective of your sexual orientation, like I said, I love you, I have no problem loving you. But when you come in here, I want to treat you as equal to anybody else, so I want to know what are the conditions here. These are established by LAC. 
So this is the LAC statement of marriage and excerpt from it. The policy guiding the practice of this local church will be to view marriage as an institution involving a covenant between a man and a woman. Therefore, the teaching about marriage that takes place at Lake Avenue Church and the use of all our church facilities shall also be in keeping with this understanding of marriage. It is also the policy of the church that pastors and the members of the church staff shall only officiate at marriages between a man and a woman. I just want you to be, want to be upfront and honest. And if you don't believe in that, I will not have any problem that if you want to leave this church, because there are walks away from this, couple blocks from, from, away from here, there are churches who don't believe this. They also read the Bible. I'm not here to question their understanding of the scripture. This is the way we read the scripture in, in our little community here. And if you don't agree with that, this place will be very uncomfortable for you. I don't want that to happen because I love you too much. But the way I love you is the way God loves you. God loves you while he hates things that he hates in your life. It is the love of God that covered the human in his nakedness. Adam and Eve were naked. He covered them with cloth. But that he also set the boundaries, saying that, no, you cannot live here anymore. He had to walk them out of the garden. See, there are the two sides of God's love, the true love, the agape love. And I do have the agape love for you. And I want all of you to know that too, that you cannot love others without hating the things that God hates in them. That is the true love of God. I'm going to close with a story. I told you about, <laughs> I started with the story of meeting my first gay friend. This is the story of meeting my first lesbian friend. <laughs> This was also around 15 years ago. I was working for this same church, actually. There's a dad who's a wonderful guy. He came and said, Pastor Matthew, I have a daughter. I want you to talk to her. And she left the church. She hates the church. She, had a, she was only 25 years old. She had a child with somebody, but then she realized her sexuality and she became a lesbian, so, so she went with the child and living with another woman. That was the situation. And uh, at that time, like, you know, I'm a fresh off the board immigrant. Like I said, I don't even know what some of the staff are. I'm not really trained to do this. I said, sure, I'll talk to her. And uh, so there was this art exhibition that came in our church. Sometimes we do art exhibition too, right? Our church was doing an art exhibition, and I knew she was a painter. She's an artist. So I thought, hey, I'll call her, and I will invite her to do an art exhibition. And her name is Grace. That's a real name that is important in the story. So I'm going to say the real name, but I'm not going to give you the last name, of course. So I remember I had her number. I remember that making that call even now because I, my heart was like beating. Like, I don't know, I, I, I created different scenarios. When I call, what will she say? If she says this, I will answer this. If she says that, then I will answer this. All of these things actually in my mind and even I've written down some of the, some of the way I can, I can be Christ to her, all of this, right? 
So I remember the call. I, I called and the, she picked up the phone and she said, uh, this is Grace. Who is this? And I said, I'm Matthew. I'm, I'm Matthew John. I'm a pastor of Stone Church. Well, that was my church. Stone Church in Toronto. That was a, that was, I just answered that. Without missing a beat, she says, I don't want to talk to any pastors. And she was angry. She was hostile. I don't want to talk to any pastors. Now, I was not prepared for that answer. <laughs> I didn't have that written. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't want to talk to any pastors. So what came out of my mouth? You know, sometimes when I'm nervous, things come out of my mouth. <laughs> so I said, this was the first thing I said. I said, Grace, that is great because I don't want to talk to any pastors either. And, <laughs> and she was in shock. And, and I said, Grace, you know, I'm a pastor. I always talk to these pastors and Christians and all that. I just want to talk to some normal people once in a while. Can you help me? I'll buy you a coffee. That's exactly what I said. I didn't know. I'll buy you a coffee. Can you help me? Then I hear is a big laughter on the other side of the phone. She couldn't control her laughter. She, was, she thought it was hilarious. It was a moment at that moment, right? Once you laugh, then it's very difficult to be enemies anymore. So she, so, so she said, okay, I'll come. I remember Kensington Mark in Toronto. I'm going there to meet her. I'm sitting there. I don't know how she looks like. Then in walks Grace. She looked like a teenage boy, short shorts, even before it was a thing back in the days. Uh, hair cut, you know, like a boy cut with uh, at least three or four different colors, pink to blue, all, all, the, all the, the spectrum. And she walks in. And the first thing she said, oh, so you want me to, uh, to, to bring my painting? And I said, yes. But she said, I paint nude. Is it okay that I bring nude paint, new paint to, painting to your church? I said, absolutely, yes. I know I cannot, but I said, I don't know. I, <laughs> I would have lost my job. But I said, absolutely, yes, because I knew she was trying to shock me. She was trying to shock me. I was shocking her also. I said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> And then, I'm going to spare you the details. Grace and I talked for nearly three hours. I would say Grace talked three hours. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I was just listening to her story. And I'm telling you that three hours she mentioned the, the story of her life, this 24-year-old young girl who went through the trauma she had to go through. You can make three Hollywood movies out of her story. And I was crying at the end. And I, I gave her a hug. And I said, Grace, Grace, I think you are amazing. This is exactly my word. So I'm going to give you a book. This is written by a personal mentor of mine. Philip Yancey, some of you know, very famous author, has written this book called, What is So Amazing About Grace? And I always keep some of his books in my shelf as a prescription to people who are going through struggle. I had a copy of that book. It said, what is so amazing about Grace? And Grace looked at it, that's her name. And I said, Grace, you are amazing. Here is the proof, and I'm going to give it to you. This is what I can give. She took that book. Couple months later, we had the exhibition. She brought her painting. She did not bring nude paintings. 
<laughs> beautiful paintings. It was all gone fine. I casually spoke to her for, for, for five minutes or so at that exhibition, but our meaningful encounter was only at that coffee shop. I've never met, I've never seen Grace after that in a while, but then a year or so later, her dad called me and said, oh, Grace left Toronto and went to Vancouver or somewhere there, uh, which is a good thing, so because she left the other woman she was living with, she went with her child. That was good news. Then another couple months later, Grace started attending a church there. I said, wow, really? Yeah. Then after a couple months, I heard that she, she is actually helping out with the women's ministry coordinator. She's the women's ministry coordinator in that church. No kidding. Yes, she was. And, and he said. Um, I can't remember how, maybe five or six years ago, or maybe even before that, when we were in Pasadena, you know, Joanne showed me this picture in a, in a Facebook. You know, I don't use Facebook, but I saw this picture of a wedding, wedding photo. Uh, as a handsome man, and there's this woman who looks, looks like a Greek goddess with dark brown long hair and blue eyes. And the child, <laughs> who's now around, at that time, around seven or eight years old, as the ring bearer, Grace was getting married. I don't know how these things happen. It didn't happen to my other friend. It didn't happen to my other friend who is still struggling with this sexual orientation, but he proves an ethics of obedience. As a pastor, I envy. I consider him a way better Christian than I am. We talk to each other. We walk the journey together. We all carry our own cross, but his cross is way bigger than mine. But I respect him. I deeply love him. But again, you cannot love others without hating the things that God hates in them. Can we show the agape love, the true love to people around us, irrespective of their ethnicity, sexuality, we are called to, to exemplify the love of God that we saw in the Garden of Eden, all the way into the book of Revelation, where the bride is being called by God, Jesus, to come and embrace him. Let's pray. Father God, you called us to walk a delicate balance between truth and falsehood, good and evil, right and wrong. In this walk, the only thing we want to focus, what balances us, is love, love of God. Lord, we know that love is not always love but God is always love. So we embrace the agape love of God and dispense it to the world. May that be our personal walk with you and may that be the legacy of Lake Avenue Church. In Jesus' name, amen.